Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, Executive Editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And today we're going to be talking about Nope, uh, Jordan Peele's third film uh, hitting theaters today. First, my interview with Jordan, the writer-director, of course. And then about 20 minutes into the podcast, you'll hear Jim Hempel's interview with the sound designer of the film, Johnny Byrne. Uh, sound work in this film is just bonkers, incredible, insane, as is all the craft. But uh, Johnny's work here is just insane. Um, and one of many reasons why to go see this thing in the on the big screen this weekend. Really, really fun film. I remember back with Get Out, um, you became such a student of uh, the social thriller. And like, I remember just doing interviews with you. I, I got an education in like Ira Levin and all the conventions of, of that, that you, that that film was in conversation with. I'm curious with this one, because I'm not sure about this. Is it, is it the same type of thing of, of going to school on alien and UFO movies? Cause I'm not sure I, I have something that there's a reference here, but I, I maybe you're a much bigger student of this than I am. I, you know, I think there's uh, uh, so many references and and uh, uh, to this one, so many things I took uh, inspiration from. The first thing I was thinking about, uh, to be honest with you, was The Wizard of Oz, just in, in thinking about uh, immersive, teleportative um, world building experiences and and true spectacles. Um, and And, you know, the first thing that came to mind is like, what is a horror, what is the horror Wizard of Oz? And so, you know, clearly the ambition was uh, was there up top, and um, and then the themes of the film just sort of began to uh, introduce them to my, them to me as I as I went. There's an element here of um, there's a big filmmaking challenge here of what's not seen, right? And it's it's, it's a great place to be as a genre filmmaker. You've done that before, but am I wrong that with this one, it's almost an ultimate challenge of of what's not in frame and 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 the the world that's going on outside and and it's like again with horror that's always a great place to be but it seems like with this one it's almost it's almost you're taking to it an extreme here right yeah you know i i love i've always thought that the ufo is a perfect horror device and maybe underutilized because but because it's it's essentially a mask you know it does the same thing as um you know jason's a hockey mask does for us, which is make us obsessed with what's underneath. And so, yeah, I mean, you're very astute as a as a as a device to get terror, to get the the unpleasant anticipation of what's what's to come. Or the, it's pleasant, it's exciting, it's titillating, but the fear of what's to come. Um, I've 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 utilized that so much in my my films. This was a movie about uh, continuing that tradition, but then also packing a little bit of the punch of, 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 give, of showing the horror as well. And when you can see the spectacle, what do you choose to show? I, I got to tell you, of all the great stuff in this thing, the thing that stood out to me and I was talking, I saw it on Monday, and it, it, it was the thing that uh, me and a bunch of people were talking about right away was, was sound in, in relationship to this. And it, I don't mean to say that us and get out doesn't have great sound, but if there's one thing in your full filmmaker toolkit, that's really kind of you're playing with and with Johnny Burns here is sound in this, this incredibly exciting way. I'm wondering if you talk about that and especially in relationship to this topic of, of, you know, what we're not seeing. Yeah. Johnny, um, Byrne and, and his team are incredible. Um, out of London. Um, he, uh, he, 
he he's a he's a true genius and and we did things a little bit different than it's normally done we we started collaborating earlier um because um you know i, I did know how uh, how it, key it was uh to uh the immersive experience i was looking for um you know close encounters of the third kind and obvious um <laughs> uh, uh influence here uh in the way it captured the scope uh and uh, the magic and you know one of the sort of breakthrough elements of that film was the sound and the immersion so you know i i knew that with every aspect we had to be trying to break barriers you know johnny built a soundscape based on wind and all the elemental um effects uh from the cause of of the the saucer and uh, and he had a library of wind when we started so um I'm I'm so glad people are are responding to the work and and he he really is a a genius. Obviously, IMAX is a big part of this, and that's a big part of the promotion. Yes, people should definitely go see it that way. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But you know, I was in, you know, when for a film like this in New York, they often show it to us in that Dolby theater, the the that the Dolby screening room they have there, and it really feels to me like with this one, you're also all the, the capabilities of what you can do now of placing sound where it is and where it can move in, in ways that you couldn't 10 years ago. It feels, you know, obviously go see an IMAX, but it really feels to me like so much of this work is, is in that sound and that atmos and how you can move things around with it. it, it, it that must've been fun to play with. Yeah. The, the atmos and the Dolby were really um, just fun to watch. Uh, see Johnny really masterfully put us in the middle and underneath the action, and and that's that's really the point. I mean, this is uh, you know normally we talk about hearing things all around us. Well, this is a movie where we really need to hear and feel what's above us in a big way. So it's it is it's a it's a dome of sound, and um, part of the artistry um, is is as much about what you include in the design, but also what you choose to exclude. You know. Um, and and making sure it's not just uh, you know dumping a wall of sound on people, um, but uh, sort of honoring the way we actually hear things, which is a little bit more pre prescriptive and, and specific. I've seen a lot of the more advanced uh, Atmos films in the last few years in that theater, and I have to tell you, your work there, the the it rivaled the only other one I can think of that used it like that was Roma. I mean, it just, I, I can't tell you how impressed I was by the sound design in this film. Well, I, I thank was you. blown away. I mean, props to Johnny Byrne and the team. I'm, 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 uh, I was really, I was in just very good hands. I mean, this guy did under the skin, one of my favorite films, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, I, and around the, 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 one of the great joys of this film was around the, the entire crew, uh, both with my production designer, Ruth DeYoung, who I worked with in, in Us, who's, I think, just capable of painting horror landscapes that uh, are totally unexpected. And of course, Hoyt, of course, yeah. Hoyt von Hoytema, my, my cinematographer, yeah. who's just an absolute beast in the best way. How much of this does it become real? Some of those sounds that you had to create for, for the UFO and what it does, you know, obviously you have to conceive of all of this. How much of it what did it become real for you in that process or did you hear it like i'm wondering did you is it one of these things where you kind of like got a sense of what um what this was going to feel like and be like or does that does it really come alive in that and trying to find what the whirling noise is and the the box and stuff like that 
yeah, very fun to um, just design this soundscape uh, with Johnny. It, it started with the the wind and the idea of you know uh, hearing hearing wind and what if you just heard a a scream and then when it's over just the phenomenon that sound is this interesting thing that you can hear something and then when it's over um you can really question whether or not you heard it or not it's a little bit less uh, tangible or stable than visual where you can also kind of do that but sound it's very ethereal in that way so we were trying to play off of that and then we knew of course that we had you know we had the task of sort of creating um alien sound uh, in a way a sound that uh, is new and felt different and that of course is fun uh, what was extremely fun for me and and we went to many natural sounds and 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 scaled them down and massive uh um to to do to do that uh, some of my favorite was in the world of of bird sounds that um are are massively slowed down um, to create something that we, we we recognize on one hand, but also we've never heard before. You mentioned uh, Hoyta. There's always some things of an element of of his cinematography. Whenever I see his films, there's things I can't figure out how he did it. Like what, I've never seen something look like that before. Yeah, and I'm wondering. One of the big things he did here was, on a, it's kind of I imagine another challenge of this one is is what you need out of nighttime cinematography here and seeing into the night. Um, and it's remarkable um, what that looks like. I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about your collaboration, but also I, I have to imagine that is a big thing that we were looking into the night sky so much, um, you know, and there's, a, there's gotta be a, I, it's beautiful the way you guys did it, but I wonder if you talk about it. It's funny. You got the blue sky right behind you in this, <laughs> this is a podcast, but it's, I'm looking at the blue right behind you. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, I've done several interviews so far and I think the, one of the greatest testaments I can say to what, um, uh, Hoyta was able to uh, pull pull off here is that almost nobody has brought up what you're talking about, um, which uh, says to me that uh, you know the the illusion is 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 truly remarkable and complete, and it's true. I I I, I don't I don't l love to point people at it if they want to enjoy the film for just, just because to keep, keep, keep the mystery, let you, let you relax. But mm. since you brought it up, <laughs> I will say, no, he did something remarkable. Look, I brought him a script that has these night scenes that uh, um, exist in the expanse of, you know, two miles uh, at a time, which um, any cinematographer um, will tell you is impossible to light, impossible to yeah. shoot. I literally don't know how he did it. Well, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, I'll tell you. some. You'll you'll figure it, it'll get around. But no, um, you know, we 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 developed uh, a. And by the way, he he's um, uh, he 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 just has a, a great uh, a series of technological developments that he's pushed in his past films. In a lot of ways, we we stood on the backs of some of the work that he's done in the past to kind of develop a new um, technique for night. And, um, and yeah, it, 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 it was hard, but, um, we did it and we're the first ones. And, and there's going to, there's a reason that when you are in the night scenes in my film, it feels different than <clears throat> any other film you've ever seen. And, and the, the idea was to allow your eyes to relax into the night and for you able to, for you able to see 
with the clarity and distance of that that of when you're actually there for it not to just feel like night usually feels in a film. You know, we actually did interview Hoyta today. I'm, I'm being, I, I, so I do have, I do have a little bit of, you know, I told, told my colleague and he gave me a little bit, but is it one thing that, that came up in that interview? Uh, my colleague sent me a couple quotes and then I, you know, it's something that's come up in the few things that I've read that you've said. And I'm wondering how it applies to this. There's, there's a desire for a spectacle of a spectacle. And I think I understand what you're, what you're getting at. And, and certainly the ideas in this film, you know, they're best, I mean, by that that final image of the shot and what what happens with Kiki in the photograph, I mean, it's it speaks for itself. So, I mean, it's best those ideas come from the film. But I am wondering about about that as it relates to creating the image, and if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by by spectacle in relationship to your work with with Hoyta here. Well, the, you know the the spectacle as. You know, I, I started talking about it and with the art with the spectacle. I started talking about it in terms of this 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 concept that's bigger than the word. And I think what I mean by that is the 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 thing we we're, we're powerless to. The vision, the image, the thing we can't look away from, the thing we have to seek out to find. It's always something new. It's always changing, and we have a. a an insatiable appetite to get there. And um, <clears throat> I, I, I said to Hoyt, uh, you know, out of the gate, you know, I, <clears throat> it's about this thing and it, and it has to be this thing. <laughs> it has to be what I'm condemning in a way. And um, so I said, look, Hoyt, I'm, we're going to go big and we're going to, you know, whatever we need to do this, I'm going to fight for us to, to get it and fight for us to get it. And his eyes lit up <laughs> and, we, and we said, uh, we said, let's go. And I said, look, if I said, first, first question, if you had to film a UFO for posterity, not, not for a movie, but if, you know, the government or NASA were like, look, you know, you got, we got one chance to film a UFO. What would you use? And he said, I would use an IMAX camera, Jordan. I would use an IMAX camera, which may have been his, you know, like I just want to shoot an IMAX, but no, <laughs> but no, no. I, I, obviously, uh, he he was right. Um, not not for the posterity of the image, it's the you know the highest resolution, um, and but you know what what I, I I the 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 format alone and the immersion that it brings is also very wonderful. So we shot with IMAX cameras for about thirty five percent of the movie, and there's even an IMAX camera in the movie is uh, that they're shooting with. For people, I think most people listen to this one once they, and we'll drop it this weekend once people get a chance to see it. But the fact that you've asked him essentially the question that you have to ask the cinematographer in the movie is, is, is pretty, it's, it's very meta. Um, you know, I, I wanted, one of the things I, and we talked about this with Get Out and us, and I'm I, so impressed by, and it's it's really one of these things that we, we don't get to see enough of is, is like, is the release that sense of pacing that you have that sense of when to let us let us be um and 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 almost easing us back into something as it mounts and it's just it's it's an incredible skill you have and it's interesting to me you're reunited with uh uh michael abels on this film and it's funny we interviewed him today too and he brought up something that was fascinating to me that one of the languages that you guys were using with each other was threat level like where are we on the threat level and that was kind of dictating his work i wonder if you could talk about that a little bit michael abels i mean another my third film with him and uh, i i think uh, I think our our most successful uh, collaboration 
so much of this film and so much of how the tone and genre of a film is formed is with uh, its music. And there was something in this in this movie that uh, where we were a- able to access a, a different gear, I think, than our other films, and that was a certain a certain earnestness of heart. Um, a, a, a there's a, a motif in there and an energy that is about um, joyousness and adventure and agency and everything that you know uh, is antithetical to to uh, the horror genre. And so um, these moments where it's all about this kind of ca- calibration and negotiation of uh, where, what, what, what the, want the audience seeing what, and what we want them to feel. And sometimes those things aren't, uh, aren't or, or the same. Sometimes the visual and the, uh, and the oral, the sound, uh, the music, um, it's imperative that they don't link up. <laughs> and so we, we, that was a lot of what our discussion was. I'm going to preface this question with, with being clear. I'm not looking for answers and I'm not looking to you explain anything. I'm not asking for it to explain. I, this is more of a screenwriting question than anything else. Okay. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very curious about the, when you, when you approach something like this, you know, how much of you, when you build a world like this has to figure out all the rules of it, you know, it's like, you know, how much thought and backstory did you have to think about, about, you know, obviously some of it's built into the story and the, the- it's built in with the themes and, and it's a lot of the things are there. And, uh, but I, I am curious though, like how far deep, do you- obviously people are going to have questions and have things for you, but I'm wondering in your own head, like, did you have to know all about this species and, and, and certain elements of this to, to write this story? Is that, are you that type of writer? Yes. I, I feel strongly like you have to uh, do a a certain amount of work that the audience can feel, um, even though you're not showing it. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I think that way with character history. I, I, I think that way with um, the our UFO in question, and um, and and I, and I, I think you can tell when the when the where the when the buck stops right after the script stops. I think you can feel that. Um, this is something that I feel in in you know some of my favorite directors, um, Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino, to name a couple. I think are are people who feel like they're painting a small picture in a world that's already painted, and so. But but also you know we, we see this the the success of this this in in Marvel and in, in the um, in uh, the Lord of the Rings and and everything that goes deeper than what you're being shown, um, you know people love it. You have a comfort. You might not know why the frogs fell out of the sky, but you have a comfort in the fact that you have a sense that the storyteller does. Right? <laughs> yes, but in, in, that, in that scenario, I feel like I have a comfort that he doesn't. <laughs> but who knows? Uh, uh, congratulations on this one, Jordan. It, it was it was a blast. Um, and uh, so, it, thank you so really... much. I, I, what a great conversation, and I, I I really love the way you watched the watched the movie. And that was my interview with writer-director Jordan Peele, and now Jim Hempel's interview with the sound designer of Nope, Johnny Byrne. So, Johnny, before we get into Nope specifically, I actually had a sort of general question about 
your choices because looking over your resume, you know, you've got films like Under the Skin and The Favorite, and it's clear that you're not a kind of journeyman sound designer or re-recording mixer who, you know, takes on dozens of projects in a year kind of indiscriminately. I mean, you clearly are drawn to very specific types of movies. And I'm curious what kinds of factors uh, motivate your choices in general? And then what was it about Nope specifically that drew you to that movie? Uh, yeah, I've had an interesting career. I came to movies a little bit later. I, I spent the first 10 years working in commercials. And um, so for me, I was uh, already quite long in the tooth in terms of um, choices. And I wanted to focus on on um, only projects that basically would have an interesting use of sound. So whenever um, whenever I get sent a script, I sometimes do a word count on how many times the word sound is used as, as a descriptor for, <laughs> for, for a thing. And if it's, that, that's a brilliant sign. And if it's got um, adjectives attributed to the sound, as in a ghostly sound or a, a um, scary sound, then, then that will be a script that will be incredibly interesting because the director would have thought about the use of sound and, and therefore for me, that's going to be a really appealing project. So yeah, I kind of only want to get involved in projects where, where sound is going to be, um, where I'm going to have something to do narratively, basically. Well, the interesting thing about Nope is, I feel like sound is so important in that movie for a few reasons. I mean, one is that the movie is so much about what's off screen or what we can't see or what we don't yet understand. And so I feel like sound kind of plays an outsized role in that kind of story. Totally. I think um, in Nope, certainly in the, in the first kind of, I say, what, third or the first act of the film, you you don't really see anything, do you? It's all suggestion. And um, and and for the most part, you don't actually hear the the monster itself at all you you're hearing its presence or the impact of its presence on the environment um you know obviously it's it's a predator so it it doesn't want to let itself be heard it's only the strange disturbances and silences and and maybe what might be trapped inside of it that that gives away that there's something there so yeah i mean when when i first read the script which was probably october the year before last um I thought, wow, you know, what an incredible opportunity <laughs> to, to to use sound in a film. And Jordan Peele is a director who who really knows how to write for sound, basically. What kinds of conversations did you have with him early on about the kind of guiding principles for the sound? Yeah, I think the early conversations were were along the lines of, um, we want it to be super realistic. It, it's got to be credible. If you believe that it happened, then it actually did happen. And for that... Um, we were kind of resisting the urge to to hear anything from the monster too early on because we we didn't want to um you know we wanted it to be credible that this was a predator and and how could something so large be getting away with this if it was making a big noise about it so we had those guiding principles for the first half of the film and and for the kind of where we end up on the film in in the final act we wanted to make sure that um, what we were going to give was was um, a kind of epic presentation of, of alien life, basically, and a really original um, visually and obviously for my part sounding representation of, of here is what goes on in Jordan Peele's head as, as what an alien is. And so, yeah, it was about the, the integrity of the sounds and making sure that they were natural and credible. Well, what kinds of natural sounds were you using for things like 
just creating the sound of the alien presence lurking in the in the crowds. One of the main sounds we were using was silence. I think what is apparent throughout the film and, and became a really powerful tool, the more we finesse the mix and the more we go through the process of removing additional noise in dialogue and all the kind of rough temporary sounds that, that get thrown into an avid, the more we realised that the best way of demonstrating Jean Jacket's presence was to have suddenly, all of a sudden, the wind dies down and, you know, the, the crickets stop chirping and suddenly there's nothing. Um, so silence is a powerful tool. Um, and um, and then, of course, in the... I think the first time we're, we're aware that anything is untowards is actually a human scream. It's, you know, in, in the first 10 minutes of the film where where OJ and his father look up to the clouds and, and what they're being alerted to is, you know, wow, is that a distant roller coaster or is that a... <laughs> is that, did I really hear a human scream or is it the whistle of wind, you know? So um, so it was um, certainly in the first half of the film the, the the monster's presence is indicated by silence or misheard wind that, that has a sort of slightly tuneful whistle to it and and could occasionally sound like trapped humans. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the wind because uh, Jordan Peele spoke with my colleague and kept bringing up the wind is like, that was a major, major part of how he saw the the sound design. So go into that a little bit more. I mean, what was, uh, what was it that was unique about the way you guys used the the wind and your how you because you did create this you you almost do with wind in this movie what like the birds does with bird sounds or the driver does with screeching tires like there's this whole layered approach to the wind yeah I mean in in an early draft of the of the script very on we had this idea where um, it was actually the sound of a of a broken metal fence post that made a whistling sound that would lure the horses out. And and it was like a misdirect because the sound you were hearing, you thought it was that, but it was actually what they were hearing was the alien. Um, so we sort of tapped into wind as an idea there. And and um, and I went out to the film set and I went to it as before they filmed there. And what was very obvious there is it's a very windy place. So wind was obviously a thing. And um, I think, uh, yeah, around Christmas the year before last, I, I sent Jordan a set of 10 files of different presentations of wind with obscured sounds kind of buried within them. Um, so largely using, you know, the simple engineer's tool of graphic EQ where you take a particular frequency and, and you'll boost it. So wind is is a kind of a white noise like the sea is. It's a, it contains this, every spectrum of sound. But if you if you spike one particular frequency, you'll get a kind of a whistle at that point. So you can be quite descriptive, and that allows you to um, to draw shapes as something. You know, you can change that frequency, and it will give you the 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 um, the idea that that something is moving through the clouds because you can sort of draw its pattern of movement with this. But you can also use that to suggest that the monster might be using the sound of wind to for example, obscure the sound of screams or or to, um, you know, as in the final act, to to see, to see say, look at me, basically. This That kind of leads me to another more general question just about how you collect and record your sounds because, again, listening to this movie or something like Under the Skin, you know, your movies sound so distinctive. They don't sound like films where you're just 
going into the usual libraries, pre-existing libraries of sound and pulling stuff. I mean, you might be doing a little bit of that, but it sounds like there's a lot of stuff that sounds like it's recorded either specifically for the movie or that you've collected it somewhere along the line and are just kind of waiting to use it. Um, Talk a little bit about your approach in that sense. Yeah, very much. I do have a kind of a a Johnny Byrne method of, I think, um, I like things to sound almost like as if they were kind of documentary real, but to somehow... Um, use that paradigm to also have a, a very cinematic filmic quality to it, which I think is the kind of the hard part. Um, because ultimately, most sounds that I end up putting in a film, most people would remove and take out because they can be quite distracting or noise based, or um, you know, they tend to be the the extraneous sounds. But uh, for me, it's those sounds that are what makes a scene credible you know, the background creaks and the rustles of trees. Um, so, yeah, so for me, um, I, if if I'm going to have, uh, you know, atmosphere on a scene of, of um, OJ and M talking in the valley, then I, and if the camera's going to move, then I want to hear a nice blustery wind um, blow across them and, and not worry too much if it's going to rise up to the level of of almost sort of look at me. But I think within the context of of an entire movie, you get used to hearing sounds in as much detail as, to be honest, they really are in real life. Um, so I, you know, as I think we're all aware, there's that phenomenon that that if you, you know, that you if you live next to a busy railway track, you sort of dial it out in your head. And most films are made with the presentation of that stuff already dialed out. So so. A lot of films will have, if there's a bicycle going past, you'll only hear the bicycle, you won't hear the other traffic or things like that. Whereas what I try to do is is get beautiful recordings of everything and throw it all in and have it as, as, as rich a soundscape the entirety of the film so that by five or ten minutes in, you're used to that and it doesn't become a sort of overly busy soundscape anymore. You just feel immersed. That's what I'm going for anyway. Yeah, that, it, well, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, another thing I really like about this movie uh, and about Jordan Peele's movies in general is that he's really good at pacing and at sort of calibrating the threat level for the audience, the way that it, it just like he, he always kind of steadily builds the threat and the menace at just the right pace. And I feel like the sound design is doing that, too, a little bit like there's a there's a pace to the sound design as a storytelling tool. Yeah, totally. I think Jordan really knows his audience, doesn't he? Unlike any other director I've worked with, he uh, I guess it must be a sort of stand-up thing, but you know, you um he a lot of his notes to me will be based exactly that around not they won't be specifics of hey that sounds a bit too long or or too shrill a sound or can you it will be he his notes will be based around can you make the scene give me this impact instead of the one you have and bring it to a peak at this point rather than that. So it's, um, it, yeah, his notes are all based around, I'm the viewer, this is how I'm experiencing it. Can you have me experience it in a different way? Um, yeah, I think it's extraordinary, his ability to um, to remember everything I've ever told him, <laughs> every sound I've ever played him, and, and uh, you know, and, and come back to me at a later point with, with uh, a different way of rearranging the events we have. Yeah, yeah in, into a pattern as you say that will that will create the ride and i think um 
a, a lot of what you're alluding to there is um, I was fortunate to be on the project a kind of unusually long period of time. And that meant that um, normally, you know, after a film's picture gets locked, the sound team might start working in earnest. But um, And that means you've got a, a hard task to get to the final mix, which is obviously super busy. Um, what we were working towards was by the time the, you know, the cut was quite locked down, we already knew everything that we wanted to do sound-wise, and it was just a case of finessing things. And and it's that level of finesse where I sit with a scene or even a shot and play it on loop and just think, right, okay, how can what's the story trying to do here? How can I shape an extra gust of wind or, you know, or what what would just drive the narrative forward at this moment? So I think a lot of what you're saying there is is Jordan giving me time to um to basically work on the mix for the last three months of, of the movie. Um, as opposed to the last month, which is what often happens. And how does the music play into that? I mean, this movie has a fantastic score as well. The score by Michael Abels is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's it's um yeah beautiful beautiful music. And um, I think the yeah because the first the first few reels of the film, so the first hour or whatever, is 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 more to do with the sensory sound experience. And there's the um, the amazing opening title music, but where we end up. In um in the last forty minutes of the movie is is um is you know such an adventure ride isn't it with with uh, Michael's powerful score and the way it works with all the the movements of I don't know how much I'm allowed to give away in in this conversation of what actually happens but but um yeah so Michael and I did a lot of to and forth a lot of discussion Michael came to the mix stage on a few occasions and you know before he went and recorded and during the process of of working on his music cues, um, he would actually come and present them on the mix stage at Universal where we would all kind of listen and, and decide how the sound might work with that. And for the most part, it's um, it's very easy for me to, say, for example, change the pitch of a wind and, and make it sound like a more beautiful thing flowing into his, into his score. Um, but he also, yeah... Um, yeah, he had some very great ideas on on, on how the sound design and score could work together better. So, yeah, it was a collaborative process. Um, another element I'm curious about, and I don't know how much, you know, really goes into this, but, I, you know, I'm curious about how you work with the dialogue in the sense that, you know, I was thinking about the actors in this movie, and it's you've kind of got very different styles and energies in terms of the voices. Like Daniel Kaluuya is really, really kind of understated and quiet in this movie. And then his sister, Kiki Palmer, is the act opposite, like this explosion of energy. And then you've got Michael Wincott, who always sounds like he just swallowed a pack of cigarettes or something. Um, what's it like? What are the sort of challenges that go into just mixing the dialogue? Yeah, well, I mean, you hit upon the hardest thing about the mix, probably. <laughs> that was... Um... Yeah, so uh, we had a, a great dialogue editor in in Deanna Carlton Timms, who um, was constantly really on it in finding the clearest takes and clarity of extra syllables. And and you're right. I mean, the um, Daniel's lines. You know, he he tends to be he's the calm, cool character. So you have to balance that with Kiki with her energy, um, and yet provide a mix where you're not having people straining and and leaning in or or being deafened. So, yeah, I mean, really, that's just about having the enormous amount of time to to finesse the mix and to carve holes for 
uh, you know, for these lines of dialogue in, in the music. I mean, there was quite a few times where we'd remove instrumentation to clear pieces of dialogue um, so that they could be heard. But, um, yeah, you spotted the tricky bit of the... <laughs> Of, of the mix <laughs> hope it wasn't too obvious <laughs> no no i mean it just seemed to me like something that would uh, that would be challenging um and then something else i wanted to ask you about is you know that i really really liked was i liked i loved the way you use the surround channels in the movie the way you place and move the sounds around i mean it's a very very immersive experience and i was wondering if you talk a little bit about that not only your approach to your technologies like dolby atmos and and all that but then how you're how you're mixing for that, but then also have to think ahead about when it's going to be presented in other formats. I mean, you know, when people are watching it on TV or whatever, I mean, how is all of that affected? Yeah, it, it, it's, I've always really loved using the, the surround speakers to the, to the full. I mixed a film called Waves a few years ago, and, and when we went to the playback of the DCP to check it, the, the uh, projectionist told us there was a problem and the film was there was a problem with the print and we couldn't do the screening because all the dialogue was in the rear speakers. And I said, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> That's just a couple of scenes where, where that happens. But, um, yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of moments in this film where the monster is behind you or, or on top of you, you know, so unusually it, it's a, I've never seen such a great opportunity for the kind of, the the ceilingscape of Dolby Atmos and and the IMAX format and um, so that was a real you know such a uh, honour and a blessing to work in in that format and I think um, also you know what combined with the with the difficulties of that was that a lot of what we're dealing with is is a monster portrayed in bassy growly sounds um, so so for the most part. Um, I was treating them as very different mixes. You know, the 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 Atmos mix had to be something where where I didn't want to compromise. You know, obviously it has to work on a on a phone and a laptop and a, in a stereo format. Um, but for those mixes, we we spent a week, um, you know, repositioning everything and attenuating the bass levels so that um, so that so that the, the mix would play correctly. But um, yeah, I think the 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 primary mix was the Dolby Atmos mix. Um, but, you know, purely just because there's so many um, opportunities to have sound coming from above in this movie. It's, it's amazing. Um, so we worked in that format without compromise and, you know, and, and really enjoyed having growly bass coming from all sorts of places in the room. <laughs> yeah, I love that word ceilingscape because that is what uh, it feels like. I mean, I've never seen a movie where I felt so much like the sound was coming from directly above my head. Yeah, it, even the shot where when um, OJ comes back from Daniel comes back from being down in the gulch and and Kiki is in the window above us as she and as she shouts her line of dialogue, the camera sort of moves down so that her position is exactly on the ceiling. And I was like, wow! So for the first time at last, I can put ceiling in the dialogue in the ceiling, and it isn't a voice of God; it's just an actual continuous part of the drama. So I was, yes, I was quite excited by that. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic sound design. It really, I think, adds just a huge dimension to the, to the movie. So I am uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. No, it's uh, been an absolute honor to work on the film. And, you know, I was so thrilled to be invited by Jordan and his team and Universal. And, you know, it's been an 
a great process all the way through. I've absolutely loved it. Very proud of the work we've done. Thanks for listening to the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. Uh, we'll be back. We've got a bunch of fun episodes planned for the summer, so definitely stay tuned. Uh, music, as always, by the great composer Nathan Halpern.